Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Big League Philanthropist Podcast, where we talk to athletes and nonprofits about the power of sports and what they're doing to make a difference in their own communities. I'm your host, Danielle Berman. I'm the founder and CEO of Tackle What's Next, where we help athletes create impact after the game and find their purpose in life after sports. Join me and learn more about how athletes all over the world are changing not only their own lives, but the lives of others around them. Welcome to the Big League Philanthropist. Hey everyone, welcome back to another Big League Philanthropist athlete interview episode. It is an episode eight and we are bringing you another fantastic interview with a wonderful athlete philanthropist. If you haven't turned into, tuned into our first seven episodes with Marcus Alston, Renee Montgomery, Natalie Hummel, Jasmine Thomas, Hugh Roberts, Bria Hartley, and Tony Sane, please go back and check them out. Each of them have been such fantastic guests. They're all doing really great work in their own communities around causes they care about. And it's just great examples of what they can, athletes can accomplish and what we all can accomplish um, and the change that we can inspire in our own communities. We've also started our BLP Bulletin. We've been off a couple weeks now. We're excited to be back next week. Uh, but be sure to tune in on Mondays for a quick rundown of the latest news in sports philanthropy and athlete activism that we are following. And of course, if you know any athletes doing great work that we need to highlight, shoot us an email at info at to let us know. That's how we found this week's guest. And if you can, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts so we can reach even more incredible listeners. So on this week's episode, we're talking to former collegiate soccer player at UNC Wilmington, Katie J. Scott. Katie J is the current executive director of IACT, a nonprofit which works to identify new solutions that can be co-created, managed, and led by refugees. The organization has helped over 24,000 refugees worldwide and is currently focused on the Darfur refugee camps in Chad. Katie J is also the creator of Refugees United, a soccer program that's now funded by UEFA that encourages children in refugee, in refugee camps to continue to play and to find joy. Katie J joined us to talk about IACT, her philanthropy goals, her journey to become a part of this organization, her love for soccer and how sport impacted her life, and how creating Refugees United has led to and will continue to lead to real change in the lives of refugee communities. It was such a pleasure to meet and chat with Katie J and highlight the work she's doing off the field. So without further ado, here is our inspiring conversation with Katie J Scott. And we'll get going. All right, everybody, welcome back to another Big League Philanthropist episode. We are here with Katie J. Scott. She is a former collegiate soccer player for UNCW and the executive director of IACT, which is a nonprofit working to identify new solutions that can be co-created, managed, and led by refugees. They have helped 21 million refugees worldwide, and they are currently focused on the Darfur refugee camps in Chad. And Katie J is also the creator of Refugees United, which is a soccer program now funded by UEFA, which encourages children in refugee camps to continue to play. So, wow, I'm already so excited for this conversation just from that. So thank you so much, Katie J, for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And just a small correction, 21 million is not, that seems much bigger than our our, our large impact. Um, so yeah, we work with about 24,000 children in our Refugees United Soccer Academy program. And then we have about 14,000 uh, children younger than that, ages three to six in our early childhood education program. And we've trained um, almost a thousand adults to manage all of those programs. Wow, that's still a big number. Congrats. <laughs> we'll make sure to correct that in some of our notes there, but thank you. That's a good correction, but still big, big group of people there. Fantastic. Thank you. Oh, of course. Well, Katie, Katie J, I really appreciate you being here. I think a lot of the folks we've had on the podcast have created nonprofits that are more focused on a specific initiative, you know, cancer research or veteran transition back into civilian life. Um, yours seems like, IACT seems like something that can kind of tackle a lot of different causes, you know, depending on what those that are, you know, using this system could do. So I want you to just tell us a little bit about what IACT is. How did you come about, you know, creating it and, and what kind of causes are, you know, your, your kind of creations impacting? 
Yeah, thank you so much. Um, IAC's new mission, really new, we're just, we're just about to release it, is to inspire a more mindful humanitarian worlds. Mm -hmm. And that really comes from the very roots of our organization. So our organization started uh, right after the onset of the genocide in Darfur, Sudan. And we really were at that time an advocacy organization the stories um, of the refugee uh, community members from Darfur who were fleeing the violence, being targeted by their government and then fleeing their violence, their voices and their stories weren't really part of US-based activism to end the genocide. And so the founder of IACT, who is also my husband for full transparency, we met doing this work. Um, <laughs> at that time, my husband in 2004 really said, what's missing in in the US-based Save Darfur movement at the time it was called, is, is the voices of the community, um, of the ones who are being directly affected. And so he and a small group of um, people went to Eastern Chad, um, where a lot of the Darfur refugees remain today, and, and spent um, almost a month um, going from camp to camp and listening to the stories of the community members, and then bringing those stories back uh, to communities here who really did care. I mean, the Save Darfur movement was a huge catalyst in, in waking up folks to the promise of never again. And what we've said after the Holocaust and Rwanda and Cambodia and Bosnia, that we won't as a world stand for genocide. Yet the voices of, of those being targeted weren't there. And so IAC's mission at the very beginning really was to put a face on the numbers and to create a community, a global community, a global community of participation, participation a culture where folks who really cared wanted to um, act in a way that was inspired by the survivors themselves. What is it that you want us to act? What do you, how do you want us to, to advocate? What do you want us to ask for when we go to Washington DC and we're sitting in front of our members of Congress? Yeah. And so that's the roots of IACT. Um, as we stayed and continued to go back to the refugee camps in Eastern Chad over many years, the spotlight, the media spotlight was leaving and a lot of the international aid groups were leaving. Money was leaving, programs were decreasing. And we saw this this stark contrast to the immediate aid rush and then, okay, well, it's kind of dragging on, people are tired, there's fatigue, policy hasn't moved much, but the refugees were still there. So as they, we had built this very trust, long uh, and deep trusting relationship, they started asking us for support for the gaps in services as, as organizations left. And one of them was early childhood education. And mm -hmm. another, another one was, how do we keep our boys here in the camp safe and not being recruited? Similar problem to what we have um, in the United States, right? How do you keep young boys? How do you help build a safe environment where they feel belonging so that they don't try to, in the case of Darfur, return and fight and, and, and join the rebel groups and, and fight? And so that's where the football program came in. Um, so we pivoted um, from mostly advocacy to, to humanitarian aid. And then as we've gone on, and now we've had these programs since 2012, 2013, we've really seen um, a real opportunity to share our programs model, which is entirely refugee-led and refugee camps, um, how that shifts power. Um, and refugees should be leading the programs in their camps. Um, and, and that's where we are today. So it's, it started really as this, this promise um, of never again, and doing something about it. And then realizing that the world not only ignores genocide when it happens, but it also ignores the communities who are impacted by it. And so I act is here to um, offer a way for for people to to participate. Yeah, and I, I love that. I think that's such a powerful story and you tied it in so well with just the experience of like storytelling and why it's important to have voices represented there. And I also love that, you know, you, you didn't create this organization. You actually started as a volunteer, right? You started working with the organization. <laughs> now you're the executive director. So tell us about that. How did you get involved? How, yeah. And, you know, how did you navigate to now executive director? Um, tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so IACT was entirely volunteer run at the very beginning. Um, nobody was paid. It was really just a small group of folks who um, knew that something needed to be done about, about what was happening in Darfur, Sudan. And so for me, I was actually still a college student um, at Portland State University. So I played at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Um, and then I did semester at sea. And then I moved uh, to Portland and I finished my, my schooling at, at PSU. 
and I was a sociology major and one of my professors, we were, I was taking foundations of sociology, which is a very boring class about a bunch of dead white men who like to philosophize about the world. <laughs> and um, my professor, Randy Blazak said, we're gonna go listen to a presentation about what's happening right now in the world. And that was Ruth Messenger, who was the former executive director of the American Jewish World Service. Mm. She had just come back from the camps in Eastern Chad and was, was sharing a slideshow and, and really trying to call us as students into action. And her first action was these green bracelets. If anybody remembers, they were huge around the Save Darfur movement. It's like, yeah. now there's a bracelet for every cause. So ours were green in the Save Darfur movement and being a college student, I didn't even have $2. So I had to borrow $2 <laughs> from the student next to me. And that was really my first act of, of activism for Darfur. And then I heard about this group and trying to do something and we were really loose net. Uh, we we did a conference at PSU and then we decided to formalize as the Portland Coalition for Genocide Awareness. Again, all volunteer. I think at that time I had graduated and I was an AmeriCorps member um, and we just started doing different events. And then there was an opportunity to bring Gabriel who after going to the camps created this exhibit called Camp Darfur. And it really places Darfur in historical context alongside other genocides. So there's a tent for Armenia um, and, and the Holocaust and Rwanda, all of our promises of never again. And then here's an opportunity to act and to, mm -hmm. to make that promise real in Darfur, that was the exhibit. And so he brought the tents and, and afterwards, all the organizers of this particular event went to dinner and he was sharing more about IAC's work and what they were doing. Again, this point, he had just gotten a fellowship. So it was not even an organization yet. And one of the other team members, uh, Marty Frommer, convinced Gabriel that he should hire me as the second team member of IACT. Wow. Uh, and so he was like, well, if you wanna work for free for a while, <laughs> join our team. And then um, after I finished my AmeriCorps, my second year of AmeriCorps, I was the second official team member um, of IACT. <laughs> that was wow, the yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's amazing and I think it's such a great lesson to think about you just don't know where where things are going to go um but you clearly were interested in it you gave some time and effort you got yourself involved and it just kind of spiraled out from there so I think that's a really great lesson that you just don't know you know it's not like there was a posting online and you're like oh this looks cool I'll apply to this like it your network, your connections, and just you built that through your, your interests. And you mentioned a little bit about your sports experience that you played at, at UNCW at Wilmington. Tell us a little bit about what playing soccer and, and playing college soccer specifically was like, and how did that experience, those lessons, influence some of the work you're doing now? Yeah, soccer had a huge impact on my life. So I, I was, I'm an only child, and I have a single parent who is the least athletic person I know. My mom was, was she was the greatest supporter because she didn't really know what was going on on the soccer field. So she was just like, you know, She's clapping like, you and like, you did great. Like there was no debrief after any games. Cause she, you know, she took me to college and was like, what position do you play? <laughs> like, but she was always there to support. And even through all the ups and downs, you know, of like, I want to quit. And I want to, you know, she was like, well, you finished the season. That's the commitment you made. You're part of a team. And if tryouts come back and you don't want to, and of course, by that time, you know, emotions flee. And of course I'm signing back up, but I would say that, that instilling the importance of teamwork was one of the and commitment so the, the teamwork when you're there when you're with your team when you're deciding on decisions when you know that what you do on the field is going to impact what somebody else is going to your movement's going to impact where the ball goes it's it's that teamwork and then the commitment that you make to the team you know that you don't just walk away and now i think sports I think all of us who are sports players have to realize our boundaries. We have to, we're not as great as saying no because we're part of a team. And so you always just say yes, 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 and push forward. So that's something I'm learning to like undo in me. But I would say that I, so I act, we have a very small staff. Here in the United States, we have six team members that are paid. We have, we support about 195 refugee colleagues who are also paid in the different communities that we work in. And then we have about a hundred volunteer experts. And those volunteer experts, they bring all sorts of different skills from um, researchers to early childhood education experts, to coaches, to directors of coaches of club teams, you know, of clubs here in the mm -hmm. United States. But 
the, the way, the reason we can have the impact we have is because we bring sub teams together. We bring the teams together. We facilitate their contributions. We have meetings where we're pulling out, okay, who can do this? What are your skills? We're thinking about, we wanna have a meeting about this idea, which, which of our team members should we pull in? All of that sort of orchestrating of team member relationships while also saying, realizing that no matter each person's skill, they have a place and a purpose yeah. on the team. That all comes from, from teamwork. I mean, that all comes from this like deep desire within me for like all of us to get along as a community. And I have to say that that, that had to have come from soccer because having only two people in my core family, <laughs> I'm not sure it came from that. You know, I really think it did come from being part of teams, seeing coaches change their roles. As you grow older, they step back. They let people, they let the players step up. Um, just seeing all, seeing how the difference of moving between my club teams to, you know, to ODP teams at the state level, to then going to regionals, to like the effort that you put in and the sacrifice you make when you win the state cup, you know, when I won that my senior year and it was like a culmination of everything we had worked for, like right. all the way through. So, I mean, I would say that I wouldn't be the leader I am today if, if I didn't have the commitment that I needed to stay on the teams that I did when I was young. Yeah, that's, I feel like such a great insight into how these lessons that we learn through sports show up later in our lives. You didn't directly say this, but you really implied it. Like, it's so important to understand and make sure everyone's clear on what their role is within the team. And as you mentioned, you have all these different people that you're working with from the, the refugee employees in these different countries to you all here in the States and to your volunteers. Everyone has to know their role. Everyone has to know who to go to when there's a problem or something that needs to get done. Um, and I think that's something that sport really uniquely teaches everyone is there is a way for everyone to have a unique role or share a role and work together to create an outcome. And, and I think that's such a unique experience. And I feel like it relates so much to any kind of business or organization, whether it's a nonprofit, a for-profit, whatever you also need to establish that sense of team. Everyone needs to know how their role contributes to the end goal. So I love that you brought that up because I think a lot of times it's hard to go, how does sport help me like after sports, right? Like what good is all this information I have? But there's so much you can pull from it. And especially in the work you guys are doing, your team has to run. Otherwise people aren't getting the support they need and, and things could get slipped through the cracks. So I thought that's such a great example. Thank you for sharing that. And it's, it's a really good, you know, reason for why sport is so important and how it can really help. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, when you're on a sports team, you know, and the team's not working well together, it's not just about the physical ability of each player, right? It's also about stepping back and saying like, okay, what are the team dynamics? Especially, I, I obviously only know girls teams. Like, you know, you get, you get into those high school years and there's like a whole lot of other dynamics happening and they come to the field, right? And that's the yes. same you know, as adults, when we come to a team, when we come to a, an organization or even a business, there's all these different dynamics that we're bringing. And sometimes we have to be reminded to like step back and say, oh, maybe our communication isn't working so well. Maybe, and I, and I remember my coaches modeling that, right? Like there was a season, I don't remember how old I was, but we were just losing, 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 losing. <laughs> like, it was like a constant. And my coach after one game just came together and was like, you know, winning is important, but there's other things that are happening on our team. Like let's do some team building exercises. Mm -hmm. Let's go out and like do some teamwork together. Like let's spend time together. Let's, because there was some other dynamics that were surfacing. So I think it's a good, it's a reminder to me too, that to bring in those lessons more and to be like, are everybody's roles clear? Like, should yeah. we have a conversation about them? Because you do on the sports teams. So yeah, it's a, it is that the roles and responsibilities and the clarity and the stepping back and realizing that as important as the outcome is, it's also the team dynamics and how we work together to get to that outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So, so good. I, I love that. And you talked a little bit about the work that you guys are doing. You have this new mission statement coming out. How did things change during this crazy year, right? You guys are working all over the world. Like, how did you guys continue to support and, you know, keep your mission statement moving? Yeah, that's a great question. I think so. 
in the camps that we work in. So we work in refugee camps in Chad, where there's refugees from Darfur, Sudan. We work in Cameroon, where refugees from Central African Republic have moved to Tanzania, where Burundians have moved to. And then in Greece, we have a really diverse um, group of community members from Iraq, Iran, mm -hmm. Afghanistan, Syria, and Congo. And they're running the Little Ripples Early Childhood Education Program there. Um, all of those programs were able to continue running when local regulations allowed. So mm -hmm. Greece's program was a lot off and on because Greece was one of those countries that like opened up right away in like June 2020 and then shut back down. And, and so all of the intermittent openings and closings, uh, Little Ripples continued to run because it was it's all community members who run the programs. They manage day to day um they make decisions you know we're on whatsapp which is great and on signal which is great um, and sometimes they bounce questions or ideas off of us but really they make all of the decisions on the ground same mm -hmm. with eastern chad um so the government of chad closed down inter basically their airport was closed down until like october 2020 wow. all the primary school all the schools were closed in country so the programs weren't running but our our teachers and our coaches um, and our education directors pivoted to really reaching out to the community and saying, let's do some education about COVID. Uh, what do you need? Let's get some soap distribution going. Um, in, in Tanzania, they really needed the water buckets and mm -hmm. the soap. Uh, the camp in Tanzania is really big. So they needed bicycles to like be able to reach everybody mm -hmm. in these camps of like 30,000 people. So our efforts while the, the programs were closed were really focused on a refugee-led COVID-19 response. We found very quickly that the refugees were out of the communication loop and in many cases out of countries' responses. So they had countrywide uh -huh. responses to COVID, but they really weren't including um, refugee camps, refugee people, displaced people on the move in their response. Um, so we immediately ended up creating fact sheets. So mm -hmm. facts versus myths, and then how, what to do as a, um, as a family, as a community leader, how do you continue supporting families at this time, all these different fact sheets. And what we found was we translated them into the languages that, that our colleagues use. Um, but what we found was that there was a much greater need for it. So a migrant workers yeah. network in Nepal picked it up and translated all the documents for their community members. Mm. Um, we had uh, a request for Swahili. So we we translate, we had a request for Spanish. I mean, we had here in the United States, um, a doctor in the Northeast who works with migrant workers saying, I need information to give these communities. I can't find any information. So we translated them into Spanish. Wow. And we really found that sort of the refugee, displaced, migrant, asylum seeking community members were left out of the information loop. Um, so a lot of our efforts were focused on that. And then in the camps, it was an individual response of like, hey, do an assessment in your community. What does your community know? What do they need? And how much money are you going to need to support that? And then we raised funds on this side and we're sending sort of direct cash, um, cash advancements to them. And then they were spending it how they, how they saw fit to support yeah. their community. Um, we obviously didn't expand any programs that weren't already going. Um, our model for both the Refugees United Soccer Academy and Little Ripples is a series of three trainings. Um, the trainings are experiential in that they can begin running the programs after the first one. And then the second one is, is a conversion of international facilitators handing over leadership to the local facilitators. So while they're part of um, relearning stuff that the first training introduced, but that's a lot right. of information. So we're gonna talk again about play-based learning and about strength-based coaching and about conflict resolution. We're gonna talk about those things again. And we're gonna ask you guys to share what's been working and what's not been working. Mm -hmm. And then we're gonna tap you guys to share uh, and lead some of those sessions that, we, that, that you feel confident. And by the third one, it's really us stepping back and them leading the whole training themselves so that by the time they've done the third training, they can expand programs on their own. So we didn't do any of the in-person trainings. We were going to launch the Refugees United Soccer Academy in Greece in June. And of course that got canceled, which was a real bummer. So that mm -hmm. trip is hopefully going to happen at the end of summer. But the UEFA Foundation for Children grant is supporting a refugee-led expansion in Eastern Chad. So in Eastern Chad, there's 12 camps on the Chad-Sudan border. We have academies in eight of them. And we've been seeking funding for several years to try to get academies to those four other camps mm. and because we've expanded um 
the academy so much in the eight others. And we've used our refugee colleagues to really lead a lot of the more recent expansions of the academies. They don't need our international staff. Um, we do like to bring materials because the materials in chat are not as high quality as say, you know, what we can get here in the US, the pop-up goals and the ladders and the cones, things like that. We do source balls in, in country. But other than that, they don't really need our international staff at all. We help um, translate the materials on paper and, you know, help put the notebook in a certain order that so it's easy for them so that they don't have to spend their time doing it. Instead, they're spending time building relationships with potential coaches. So the UEFA Foundation for Children grant, which we're so excited about, is funding the expansion. So it's paying for our veteran coaches to go to the camps to run a coach's training session, which is of about 30, like 20 to 30 coaches, half men, half women. Our model is that every academy is run by two men and two women. Mm. Um, they go through a series of about three or four days of training, and then they do coach selection. And then that grant will pay for those coaches' salaries for a year. Wow. Um, and then it, and, and then each academy can support about two, up to 2,000 kids, ages mm. six to 13, doing true training sessions a week, um, year round in Eastern Chad. <laughs> Wow. I, I was going to ask you a little bit about that. So I appreciate you explaining a little bit more about the, you know, the actual football program. And I think it's really interesting because sometimes we don't think about how sport can be that tool to bring people together. Like you said, to find ways to give kids outlets for their time and creating those communities that, you know, keep them engaged in something positive and healthy. Um, so was that something that you always, you know, knew was something you wanted to start and get involved in? Like, how did you see that, oh, sport, soccer could do this, football could do this for these kids? Yeah, actually, it wasn't us. It was the community themselves. Mm -hmm. So we, so how the Refugees United Soccer Academy started, it actually grew out of a project um, of, a, of an adult team, the Darfur United men's team. So okay. we, um, we started Little Ripples, um, and at the same time, uh, an organization, an international, a non-FIFA international football association came to us and said, would you be interested in bringing a team um, from Darfur, uh, of Darfuris, to this international tournament in, in Iraqi Kurdistan? And we were like, that's going to be, that's, that's huge to take, to, to be able to move folks who don't have passports is, is yeah. a big deal. And we were like, we'll ask them right? Like, let's just ask the community if that's something that they're willing to do and what they want that to look like. And so we um, asked different community letters in Eastern Chad. One of the community leaders after hearing about the opportunity said, now we are part of the world. Wow. So the, the ability to participate, I mean, yes, football loved by everybody, right? But being able to be seen on a field to be able to be seen as a team for, for the world to say like, hey, Darfur is still here and here's our players and here's our story mm -hmm. was a huge um, opportunity for them to, to participate in the world. I mean, not only are they really geographically isolated in the camps in Eastern Chad, they're very forgotten by the world. I mean, this is what the world does. We sort of move on once the media spotlight moves on, we kind of forget that there's still refugees who, who are, don't have homes, yeah. right? That have had been forced to leave and they're still there in Eastern Chad. Uh, even since 2004, when we first started, they're still there, right? Which is crazy to think about. It's been so long. And I remember hearing about this when, you know, that 16, 17 years ago was such a big deal. Everyone was talking about it. And you just, you're right. You don't think about like, did that, did they ever go back? Like what happened? Did, just not, yeah. so. did they ever go back? And so <laughs> they wanted to be part of this um, tournament, the Viva World Cup. And so we uh, helped facilitate, um, we asked each camp to pick five of their best players. You guys figure out how best you want to do that. Send five of your best players to these tryouts. Um, we have a coach for Darfur United. His name is um, Mark Hudson. He went to the camps. He brought an assistant, Gabriel, um, our founder, and my husband went to the camps and they picked um, a group of guys to, to go. They stayed, they trained. I think the team, when we went to Iraqi Kurdistan, the team had been together for like three and a half months. Uh, we, we got killed. <laughs> We, we did score the first goal ever okay. uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan, which was great. Um, and one of the things that they said was, how do we bring this experience back to the camps? How do we share what this is with the larger community um, living in the camps in Eastern Chad? 
And that's, that's the inspiration in the seed of the Refugees United Soccer Academy. So how our programs um, frameworks work is we sort of dream about the best possible gold standard. You know, what's the best way to interact with children, the best possible way to provide them with sport? What's the best one hour session can yeah. you do, right? Like skills and drills for 20 minutes, you know, small sided games. Like we're not going to do big field with six year olds like they do here in the United States. My eight year old plays it. I'm like, that goal is like gigantic, <laughs> right? Like small sided. So what's the best, what has the world come up with as like the gold standard bar? And like, how do we provide that framework to the community coaches? And then they can change it and adjust it and add and, um, then make it their own. And that's really like the co-creation process. Um, we, we have pillars, which are peace helping and sharing. We have three main responsibilities for both our Little Ripples teachers and our coach, coaches, which is create a safe environment, right? So emotionally and physically. So not don't just make sure there's nothing sharp on the field, but form that responsive relationship um, with each child that's in your academy. And that goes back to Everybody needs safety no matter what. And communities who've been forced to move and who have experienced a traumatic event or violence need that safety even more, right, yeah. than, than all of us. Create this feeling of belonging in the academy. Welcome everybody in. I mean, gender equity is a huge part of our uh, philosophy. That's why we always have two women coaches. Even if tryout coaches tryouts is the first time they've ever touched a ball, you can still be a coach, right? Because it is so much more than just playing. And then we're, we're, we're all about the playing soccer, right? We're not just using it as a tool to teach about health and hygiene, which we do, not just a tool to teach about, you know, social and emotional learning, which we do, but it's serious about soccer. Like let's play. We know that play has the opportunity to heal no matter what age, no matter what you've been through. It was for me in all of my childhood experiences was just a really important outlet. Uh, and then just having fun, just yeah. having fun with them. And especially in, I mean, not only here in the United States, I feel like kids are under so much pressure and they don't really get the opportunity to just have fun, but even more so when you're in a camp, when you have responsibilities that are really essential to, to your family's survival, getting water, collecting firewood, that opportunity to play, not only is a right as a child to play, you know, it's in the convention of children's rights. It's also something that will make you, will, will offer you the ability to thrive into adulthood, right? Play it, it, and having fun and smiling, the act of a smiling releases things in your brain, right? That help you develop. So these are like the three main things that our, our coaches are responsible for, I guess, you know, safety, play and having fun. And then everything else falls in line, right? Leadership falls in line, health and hygiene practices. We use mindfulness in all of mm -hmm. our programs um, to help with just tools for self-regulation. Again, Self-regulation is this amazing opportunity for everybody everywhere yeah. and folks who have a lot of uncertainty and stress, you know, should and do and deserve those tools even more. So really being able to offer that really safe space. But yeah, the, the community member that started with the community member saying, you know, what can we offer for our youth? you know, there's nothing else. And then the Darfur United men's team, and we now have a Darfur United women's team as well. But the, those original players saying, how do we create, recreate this experience of representing Darfur? How do we bring that back to, yeah. to our refugee camps? Wow. I, I love a couple. I love everything about that. But one of the things that I love is that you guys went to them to say, is this something you'd be interested in? Is this something that would make sense? Is this something you want? Um, and you didn't say, oh, we're just going to do it because we want to do it. It's like, well, let's let's have them be the leaders. And I love that you kind of gave them the reins and said, we're here to support you. We'll help you make it happen. But this has to be something that you as a community would benefit from and actually want, which I think not enough people consider the community they're supporting when they come up with programs or nonprofits or organizations. They think this is where the impact needs to be without having those conversations. Um, and so I think that's really important. And two, I love that sport is just a, a it's the it's the piece of the a piece of the puzzle there's so much else going on around it but for the kids it's the sport you're not mm -hmm. trying to overload them and say well hey we're done with soccer now we're moving on to this more important thing so stop it's like we're gonna play soccer for now we're gonna play soccer for an hour and you guys just go crazy and have a good time I love that and I think it, it you are right so many especially I'm sure in these camps 
there's so much pressure and they don't get an opportunity to just run around and have a good time. And so it's great to hear that you're offering that. And that's the main priority of everything. It's not, here's the, you know, return on these programs we want to see in their minds. Like you're going to get that. But the goal is like, did they smile? Did they have a yes. good time today? Like, okay. Yes. Did they, leave the, <laughs> did they leave the field smiling? Yes. <laughs> you know, and like yeah. what's, what's great is that we see this change in this change in the camp where like our coaches become like superstars. Like when we go to visit and we will always return, like even though we're not needed to train, we will always return to Eastern Chad because that's where our roots as an organization started. And the community are our friends and our family. Yeah. Just like I try to see my mom once a year who lives in London. I wanna go and see our friends every year, right? So, but when we go, they walk through the camps, they are like, you know, super fan, like coach, coach, right? Like you can see that you can see that they've created these responsive relationships that the children love them. They love coming to the Academy. Right. And, and that measure, that is the measurement of success, right? Do the children have a space to be children? Do they love their coaches? Right. And, and then learning will happen. All that will happen. They will learn the skills and they will learn how to be social with each other and they will learn and they will, and the reason they'll learn those things is because they're, they're joyful in the moment and they're being present in the moment because they're having fun and they want yeah. to be there. Right. So it is like that joy is just, you know, joy is real. <laughs> joy is real. And, and when we're working with communities, I mean, that is really what, what we try to center at IACT, like what brings joy and that hope is real, right? Mm -hmm. Like the hope that this will support their children into the future, right? It becomes tangible when they see their kids being able to be kids again. And then they see the lessons of what they're doing and they bring them home. And, and, you know, we've heard parents talk about how they brought lessons home and um, how they force it upon their parents. Then that's what social change is about, right? Like yes. teach the kids and then the kids will teach the parents yes. <laughs> teach all of us how to change. So yeah, that joy and that hope that comes from is, is as important as what we think of in sort of the West or the global North as like an output. Like, what is your output? How many, what number of kids do you want to reach? Yes, yeah. that is important. And how the kids feel on the program is as important as them being, you know, tallied as a number. Oh, 100%. That's so, so important. I think it's, it's important everywhere, you know, but especially when you're talking about being present and letting these kids just have a chance to take in all of that stuff. It just has to be one focus, which is just enjoy. Enjoy has to be, be that part of it. And, and I want to talk about, I have a couple more questions for you before we wrap up, but I want to talk about again, your experience as, as an athlete yourself. Do you think this has helped you push these campaigns forward, push these initiatives forward? Has it there been any kind of negative impact to being an athlete that you can see? Like, how has that played in it played a role? Yeah, I, I mean, I am a very, um, I was never a captain, um, like an official captain. I was like, I was a a very loud and aggressive player, which people now are like, you were aggressive. And I was like, <laughs> I always held the most yellow cards. I definitely got red carded more than once. Um, I was just a very aggressive player. I mean, I really used sport as a therapy for me. Like for me, mm -hmm. that was where I got, so something clicks. Even now when I like play beach soccer with my family, they're like, you are so aggressive. I'm like, something <laughs> happens. I click, I just want that ball, right? Like I, I played on an adult league here um, in, I live in Redondo Beach, California. I tore my ACL there. So I don't play with adult oh, wow. teams anymore because I do have to save my body in my aging, aging years. Um, but yeah, something clicks. And then it's funny because people will say, you're such a nice person and you run this NGO and you guys are about mindfulness and peace. And you're just like this, you just want that ball. I'm like, oh yeah, I just, so I think there is this drive in me, you know, that, that comes from, it was honed and it was practiced as a, as a team member and as a soccer player. And I was also very, I played, well, I played stopper when we played, you know, four in the back, but then I moved to like an outside defender position where you could move up and down, but I was always the up and down person. And I was always orchestrating. I liked being in the back because I could see and I could communicate. I also have a very loud voice. It's probably is coming through on this podcast. I was very loud. <laughs> I do too. So this will be fine. Yeah. We'll sound normal <laughs> to each other. <laughs> so I find that that, or that practice in orchestrating helps with orchestrating teams, right? Because you do sort of catalog, you know, okay, this player is good at this. 
like shifting her over and then same with team management, right? Like this person is good at this, bring this person in. Yeah. Um, I would say that in the one way that it hinders me is I'm like, let's bring everybody in. Let's bring, and some people are like, well, let's just keep it small at first. Cause once you open Pandora's box, like how are you going to put everything else in? I'm like, I don't know. We'll just get there. We'll get there when we get there. So I think too, my love for like big teams and big teamwork, you know, maybe it would have been different if I played like doubles tennis where you only have one other team member, but I think being on an 11 aside and like doing all of the traveling, the overnight where you're traveling with 18 players, you're traveling with 20 players, you want everybody to be included. You want everybody to be part of the team dinner. And so I think sometimes in a way that does hinder me because I'm like, let's bring everybody in. And then some of my team members will be like, maybe we just bring in four people for the initial conversation. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, but I would say that the like sort of the drive and the urgency while recognizing that you do also have to pause, talk about communication, our roles and responsibilities clear. So it's that balance and that tension that is really clear on on soccer teams like big teams you know and I would say it's probably clear on like you know football American football or you know any any sort of big team sport baseball um and then the tension of of realizing like actually we need to slow down and have a a verbal conversation that has nothing to do with the sport and the skill Mm -hmm. there's something else there's other team dynamics going on right so yeah yeah. but definitely in terms of hindrance I think it's the like let's bring everybody in (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they're realizing that sometimes smaller team conversations can move projects forward faster. <laughs> right. Less cooks in the kitchen sometimes is a, is a helpful, um, helpful solution here. Yes. Um, well, I, I agree. I think there's so many benefits to the experience that you talked about earlier and just the lessons you're able to pull. And then also just the opportunity and access that you have through whether it's, you know, relationships you've made through your team, through your school, through your, your pro team, if you make it that far. Um, and I think it, there's just a lot of benefits to having that experience. Um, and I love the drive comment because it's so true. I mean, you, you have that drive on the field and it's really easy to, to kind of tap back into that when something you're so clearly passionate about when you need to get something done. Nobody's going to be like, Katie J, it's not happening. You're going to be like, well, that's things for you because it's happening. We're making it happen. So you can tell that that's something you're pushing forward. Um, and this is a question we ask all of our guests. So I want to make sure we ask this one to you before we wrap up. What does being a philanthropist mean to you? What does that word philanthropy mean in your mind? Oh, that's a great question. And I think that's one that's really shifted for me, um, as I've grown and as I've worked more and more communities, I think philanthropy, so philanthropy means you have resources to help meet the needs of yourself and of others, right? So if we think of meeting other people's needs, how do we make, we, and we have, we're, we're, uh, our basic needs are met, right? So as a philanthropist, like my basic needs are met and I have extra resources and needs that I can share. I think my responsibility as a philanthropist at this point is to ask the communities that I work with and say, what is it that you need and how can I help you? How can I be a co-conspirator? How can I be an ally in you realizing your full potential in your dreams? What does that mean to you? And I have resources as a philanthropist. So how do I support you in that? And really taking my lead as a philanthropist from the community whom I really seek to support. And for me, that's, you know, folks who've been affected by conflict. And for others, it's cancer survivors or it's, but I think shifting that power from the person who has the resources, from me, from the philanthropist, shifting that power to the community which sometimes is, you know, is more top down. Sometimes when we have resources, we think we hold the power and and that we should hold the power. And so I think for me at this point in time, it's really asking myself, how do I shift power away from me in those decisions while still offering the resources I have um, and, and, and still being present and engaged, right? It's not a here's my resources and I want to like disappear and disengage. I still want to be there with you. I still want to be in this with you. I want to learn from you. I want it to be sort of a mutual uh, beneficial relationship, right? And so how can I as a philanthropist support you and, and take my lead from you and so that both of our futures are better? Yeah, I absolutely love that. I think that's such a great idea of thinking about the shift from a top down approach of like, hey, I have the resources. I'll figure out what to do with them. It's all on me. 
to that shift of here, I'm here to help you. I am here to be your resource. Really, I am the resource, but you tell me what to do um, yeah. is so important. And I think you're right. We think about philanthropy, I think a lot of times is like, oh, it's somebody that is powerful or has a lot of money and like they're, they're all set. So they're just trying to donate stuff or get involved. Um, but philanthropy can look so many different ways. I think that the most impactful philanthropy is exactly what you said. It's, it's that prioritizes the people you're serving and their needs, not your interests or your excited, what you're excited about, right? You, if they're excited about something, you're excited about it because it's going to help you, you know, reach that mission or that impact. So I really, really love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then I have two more quick questions for you. One, we have a lot of athletes that either listen or, you know, check out some of the work that we're doing. And a lot of this past year and a half has been athletes wondering and kind of figuring out how can they speak up or use their platforms to, you know, make a difference on issues that matter to them. How can they help drive change? So I want to ask you, what advice do you have for athletes at any level that whether they want to speak out, whether they want to get involved, where do they start? I mean, I would say un uncovering that, that passion, you know, for me, it was that moment where Ruth Messenger put up the picture of a child with, with orange hair and said, you know, she's severely malnourished and this is where the orange hair comes from. And I was like, no child, why is genocide still going on? Yeah. Like, so that moment and, and just hanging on to that moment as the core in the beginning. And then I think we're all going to make mistakes. So trying out different ways of activism, maybe it's a tweet, maybe it's asking, seeking an ambassadorship program and being an ambassador for an organization and, and really being, taking that fearlessness of the athletic, uh, of the, you know, archetype that we all share as athletes, you know, taking that and not being afraid to, to try things out and then realizing that we made a mistake and be like, you know, I don't want my philanthropy to be like that. I don't want to speak out like that, but we have to move forward and try. And we have to realize that in, intention and impact may be different. Right. And so that reflection piece is really good, but I would say, don't hesitate to try like find that passion, hold it center so you can always act from a place of your values and your own purpose. And don't be afraid to engage, engage, reflect, change, adjust, engage, reflect, change, adjust, just like we do as athletes, right? You play an opponent, you lose, you learn something, you adjust, you play them again, right? So it's the same sort of um, cycle of learning that you can apply from sports into philanthropy and activism. Yeah. Fantastic. That's great advice. I think you, you made a really good point there and I appreciate you sharing. I think it is very much a trial and error that you have to go through sometimes. Um, and it's okay. I think a lot of people are afraid to speak out. We've got kind of cancel culture going on right now. People are afraid, but you know, if your intention is good, if your intention is well-meaning, and if you have that, like you said, impact and effort and kind of in like actual desire to continue beyond just sending a tweet out, right? That's where people will show, well, her or his intention was really good. I see what he or she is trying to do here and I can support them learning from their mistake and continuing on. So I think that's really, really good advice. Um, and Katie J, I want you to tell us just quickly as we wrap up, what is currently going on at IACT? What are you guys working on right now? And if people wanna support, get involved, reach out to you guys, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so you can go to our website, which is www.iact.ngo, um, and you can collect all of the relevant information about what's happening. But I want to I want to put out two two things. So first, we have the UEFA Foundation for Children's grant, and we're still about seventy six thousand short of the large goal of funding that we need, and we are looking for ambassadors. For partners, if you're, um, you know, a professional athlete, to help us, you know, advocate and share our work. If you're a coach of a team, get your team involved, right? So these are connecting them with the players in the camps, connecting yourself as a coach with the coaches over there, um, helping us use this opportunity to really amplify a refugee-led uh, sports program would be really meaningful. Um, the second part of what we're really focusing on right now is moving into Central African Republic. This is a country who has had, who has experienced cycles of violence almost every decade since their independence. Mm -hmm. So for about the last 35, 40 years, and they've experienced the most recent one in December, 2020, a million new community members were displaced outside of the country, let alone inside. Um, and we are looking for partners 
for advocates um, for funding to be able to bring our, our community led frameworks to support children ages three all the way up to 13 through our early childhood development program and our Refugees United Soccer Academy um, and hire teachers and coaches who live in CAR, who are from CAR um, to, to use these program frameworks and make them their own. You know, we did a training there in 2017 and one of the teachers really expressed that their hope lies in their youth, that, that the adults have created the situation that the country is in and that they really believe that the future is, is with our children. Um, and so if you are interested in supporting our efforts in Central African Republic, you can get involved. Um, you can email me. Um, my email is just my initials, ktj at iactivism.org. And as the executive director, my email and phone number are like all over the website. So <laughs> don't feel like you have to scramble to write that down. You can go to our website and it'll be there. But those are the two main projects we have going on. And we are always looking for people to be involved. That's awesome. And we'll make sure we drop the website, your email, some of your socials, if you have it in the show notes. And I think um, definitely anyone listening that is thinking and going, oh, you know, I know someone that might be a good fit to get involved. Make sure you go follow, reach out, connect with KDJ. I think it's so awesome what you're doing. I want to thank you first and foremost for coming on the show, but also just for, you know, continuing to push this work. Like you said, the media spotlight's not on it. Nobody's kind of like interviewing you from CNN, like, hey, tell us what the situation is. But you guys are doing this super important work. I really, really love that you are, it, it seems, still just as excited, just as motivated, just <laughs> yeah. as passionate as it seems like you were when you saw that picture in college and you were just like, I got to do something about this. So thank you for, for sharing so much with us. And I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been great to chat and learn a lot more about what IAC does. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and for doing a podcast like this. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. And I got to thank, uh, I got to thank Ben for connecting us and making this all happen too. <laughs> so if you're listening, Ben, hello, and thank you. And, and thanks again for tuning in for another great episode. Thanks, Katie J. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us and tuning in to another great episode of the Big League Philanthropist. It was such a treat to have Katie J join us for another episode. You can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll add all those links to the show notes for her and I act. And thank you again to Katie J for taking the time to sit down with us. We are so excited for the work she's doing. Clearly her passion and motivation came through during this episode. And the work that IACT is doing around the world is so important. So it's always a pleasure to highlight athlete activism like the work Katie J is doing. As I mentioned, thank you to Ben for connecting us and making this interview possible. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, Ben. And we're so excited to have connected with Katie J. So always please feel free to reach out to us with uh, episode interview requests or folks you think might be great to have on the show. We would love to feature them. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so we can reach even more incredible listeners and share this episode with a friend who you think would love this conversation. A big thank you to Ethan Kenny and Tyler Brooke from Team Taco What's Next for their help editing this episode. And we'll see you next time for another inspiring conversation here at the Big League Philanthropist. Thank you.